Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Guy, who was just 18 when a game of golf took an almost tragic turn when he had a sudden cardiac arrest out of the blue. Yeah, it was in April of 2021. I was on Easter break from school, literally just before my A-levels. So it was Monday afternoon. I just went and played a leisurely game of golf with one of my best mates. We played eight holes. It's a 12-hole course, but we played eight holes. And then on the ninth tee, hit my tee shot, collapsed. And that was the round over, obviously. From the British Harp Foundation, I'm Ruth Huntman. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, I talk with Guy about being a cardiac arrest survivor, the subsequent shock diagnosis that impacted his family, and how he's forged a strong bond with the stranger that saved his life. Hi Guy, thanks so much for your time today. It's lovely to see you as always. Could you just firstly tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your family and, and growing up? Yeah, so I'm a student currently at uh, the University of Exeter studying business and management. I've been here for one year. I'm nearly at the end of my first year. Uh, I was at school in Shrewsbury um, where I went for five years. I was at prep school back in Kenya where I live. Uh, my brother is called Joss. He is in his final year at uh, Shrewsbury as well. My mum lives back in Kenya. She works there. My dad uh, sadly passed away when I was a young boy, uh, but that's kind of really the the, deep, the uh, little details of, of who I am. You just touched on that, that you, your dad passed away when you were very young, and at the time you were told it was a, a heart attack. Can you tell me, do you mind telling me a little bit about that and, and sort of the impact it had on you, which which must have been huge? Yeah, so the first things we heard about it was that it was a heart attack. You know, I was six years old. I didn't really know what a heart was or what anything was really. I mean, I was just focused on my toys and my sport, but um, I didn't know what was going on. And then obviously as I grew up through my teenage years, I learned more and more about it. In terms of the heart attack, we don't know to this day. We will never know whether it actually was a heart attack. Doctors in England you know, are sceptical. They don't know whether it actually was a heart attack, but we'll never know, as I said. But obviously the impact it had on me, yeah, it was big, uh, as, as it would be. You know, I had to grow up without him there. And it was it was challenging. But, you know, I, I kind of got used to it very quickly, which sounds a little bit odd. But because as a youngster, as a very young young boy, you don't really know what's going on. So you sort of, as bad as it sounds, you sort of just, you get to you get to grips with it and learn very quickly that he's not around. So I, I, I kind of got to grips with it quite quickly. But yeah, obviously it had a big, big impact on me. We'll come on to that a little bit later as well, if you don't mind, because your, your story has got, you know, quite a bearing on what happened to him. Did you ever worry about your own heart growing up because of what happened to your dad? Or as you say, were you just living your boyhood life? Yeah, I mean, I there was very little worry in a sense, for me at least. I never really thought about it. My mum never really told me anything about it. Neither did the rest of my family. The, the talk wasn't really there. But weirdly, in a way, because my grandfather, my dad's dad, had passed away in his early 50s. I don't actually know what it was from, but I think it was a suspected heart attack. So, you know, you would have thought that somebody might think of this passing down through the family, but I don't know, people didn't really seem to talk about it. I didn't hear anything. Um, yeah. But, you know, I didn't worry. I never worried about that. Uh, I, I was quite a fit young lad. I did a lot of sport. So I never really thought that a heart issue was going to be going to hit me. No, no, absolutely. And you had no reason to. Um, I mean... Just explain to me now a little bit about the lead up to that day in, in 2021 that, that really changed everything 
for you. You were on the golf course playing one of your favourite sports, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, on a golf course. Um, who would have thought? Not the most strenuous activity. But uh, yeah, it was in April of 2021. I was on Easter break uh, from school, literally just before my A-levels, which were cancelled from COVID, but never mind. Um, so it was Monday afternoon. I just went and played a leisurely game of golf with, a, with one of my best mates. Uh, we played eight holes. It's a 12-hole course, but we played eight holes. And then on the ninth tee, hit my tee shot, collapsed. And that was the round over, obviously. Next thing I knew was I was in hospital two days later. Apparently, I'd been put in an induced coma. Um, and then everything sort of, from there, has just changed quite a lot. But not as much as it could have done, I think. Absolutely. So let's do, obviously, you you were unconscious. And it was, just to clarify, you'd, you'd had a sudden cardiac arrest and your heart had stopped. And so obviously, you had to fill in the gaps afterwards so can you tell me what happened because and, and how how you're still here today, basically? Yeah, so, you know, the lead up to the actual moment was very normal. I played that course hundreds of times. There was no difference in how I felt. I was playing okay. I mean, I wasn't having an awful day. So, but yeah, very normal day. And we, we got to that ninth tee, I collapsed. And on the tee parallel, on the whole parallel to us, uh, was a physio. He was on the tee box. Um, a trained physio he saw that there was sort of people gathering around the the tee box that I was on uh, he came over he didn't really rush over because he he said that there was no real urgency where I was and people weren't rushing around people sort of just thinking I'd been hit by a golf ball or hit by a club because I had a bit of bleeding on my face uh, which was from from the fall but it but people sort of thought I'd been hit so he strolled over slowly he um, came and felt my pulse uh, it was going very slowly or it was dying I didn't. I didn't really hear the details, but he said it was it was just slowly petering off, and so he just went into autopilot, started doing CPR, and luckily there's a defibrillator in the clubhouse um, at, at the course, so the uh, club professional was notified. He got one of his guys to send it up. Uh, I think it was on me within about four or five minutes, which is very very good. You know, as time goes on, obviously the chance of survival will reduce. So that was put on me within four or five minutes. Uh, also, there was a there was a nurse who I think I've contacted only once. She she reached out to me at least after almost two years. Literally the other day, I heard from her, which was nice. But so she um she came over to help uh, him do CPR because it's quite a strenuous activity. And the defib was put on me. My heart was uh, set off first time back in rhythm, which was a good sign, which was lucky as well. And well, apparently there was lots of police and ambulance and and all of that stuff around. Uh, but I got in the ambulance. I don't know how long after. I literally I wasn't told. I've been told most things, but not the, the details. I was rushed off to hospital to Stoke, uh, put in an induced coma and uh, woke up two days later. Wow. Just going back slightly. So you didn't have any symptoms? You didn't feel ill at all or any chest symptoms or there was nothing untoward in the way you felt that day? No, not at all. I mean, from what I remember personally, I bought a snicker before the round and I remember going up to watch because the Shrewsbury Town football ground is right next to the the uh, the um the course. So I remember going up to have a look at the score, what was going on. Those are the only two things I remember from the day and the tee shot. But apart from that, I don't remember anything. But my mate, interestingly, told me or told my mum afterwards or when he saw her that I felt tingling in my hands. But I, I think it was because it was a cold day. It was, it was beginning of April. So I think it was because I was cold. I usually get that anyway. My fingers are quite prone to doing that. So that, that was the only thing that could have you know, potentially been a an underlying cause or not cause, but underlying um, thing that was going on with my body. But apart from that, not really. 
So when you woke up from your induced coma, who explained to you what had happened and what was kind of the first thing that went through your mind? Was it disbelief, confusion, anger? I mean, I was really confused because I was on some quite strong drugs. Uh, I thought I was in Nottingham having a night out the night before, which I clearly I wasn't. Um, so, yeah, you can see why I was at that stage. But, yeah, as you know, as the days went on, literally, I think it took me a couple of days just to get back to a sense of what was actually going on. You know, I was told pretty quickly. Didn't really take it in to start with, sort of thought it was a joke and uh, all that sort of stuff. But when it really actually struck me, I, you know, I sort of thought, really, how, what? You know, I'm a fit guy. Would this really happen to me? And I'm one of those guys, and I think most people are, we sort of think, oh, these things are not going to happen to you before they happen. We say, oh, you know, this is just the chances. What are the chances? So I was one of them. And so for it to actually happen or something like that to happen was, yeah, I was a bit shocked, to be honest. Uh, but obviously, you know, I knew how lucky I was to have survived and I realised that very quickly. Uh, so I was grateful in a way that Aaron was there and I met him very quickly after leaving hospital. Uh, and, it, you know, I, I was able to, yeah, get to grips pretty quickly with, with what actually happened, which was kind of nice because I didn't want it to dawn on me too long and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but what, what, what is it fair to say that you did have a little bit of, of denial at first, though? Because as you say, young, you were 18 at the time. Um, no warning, no reason to ever think this would happen to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, there was definitely, definitely a bit of denial there. Slight annoyance, I have to say, at the beginning, but I look back on it now and go, oh, you know, I'm very lucky to be here. So I, I tend to try and not think about that. But yeah, the general sense at the beginning was it's not really fair, but I think that's that was going to happen anyway. Absolutely. And did you worry in sort of those early days when you were recovering about the future like oh I'm will I be able to play sport again will I be able to achieve my dreams will I be able to to go to university were, were those worries in your mind uh yeah you know I obviously thought about my future in terms of my short-term future my university my sports because I was actually due to go to Loughborough to play football obviously that was small worry in the circumstances but I knew that that probably wasn't going to happen again because you know as I spoke to doctors in the days afterwards they were sort of telling me, you know, physical activity to a high level is probably not the greatest idea. Uh, so, you know, it sort of dawned on me quite quite early on that actually I was not going to be able to play football to the level I wanted. But it's a small sacrifice, I think, at the end of the day. Um, in terms of other things, you know, I'm, I haven't lost too much, really. My brain seems to be intact, believe it or not. But I, yeah, I think the sport was the main, the main loss for me. And I think the rest of it was actually, you know, I'm very lucky that the rest of it was OK. Yeah. And what did doctors tell you about what had caused your cardiac arrest? At what, what point did you get some answers? Yeah, so in the very early days, even when I was in hospital, I was you know, speaking to doctors, my mum was speaking to doctors, and they suspected from, from the onset that it was a syndrome called long QT, uh, which actually was the cause. You know, I think eight to nine months later, I was sent a message from the NHS saying that they found this anomaly. Um, in my genes of, of long QT syndrome, which was the cause of, of the cardiac arrest. So, you know, I, I trusted the doctors. I, I didn't want to go against what they thought. I, I, they, they did test tests for drugs, which, uh, you know, were negative, luckily. So, you know, I think they got it. They knew it from, from the onset and that was it, really. But, but it took, presumably you had a, a, like lots and lots of tests and things for them to actually confirm that. Because as you say, you didn't get your diagnosis till about eight months after it happened. Yeah, they, they did plenty of tests and a lot of them they did when I was not actually awake, I, I seem to believe, because the only thing I remember them doing was 
the um, surgery on my on my chest when I was actually awake. Yeah, and just before we go on to explain a bit more about long QT and and how that seemed, you know, had a great impact on your family going forwards. So you mentioned the surgery. So when you were in hospital, you had an ICD fitted. Can you explain how you felt when you were told that you had to have that and and how, you know, you've coped with it? Yeah, so I was told pretty much as as I was waking, well, a few days after I woke up when I got to grips with what was going on, that I was going to have this ICD fitted in my chest. Uh, They asked me, the only thing they really asked is which side, which um, side of my body I wanted it in. I chose my left because uh, it's my uh, my weaker side. Don't know how much of a difference difference it would make, uh, but you know, I it actually got to a stage where I was probably able to leave hospital after five days, believe it or not. Again, but I had to wait because you know these doctors at NHS is very you know full on and that they didn't have much time. So I had to wait for today ten to actually get my uh, device fitted, um, and I actually left that day. You know, it was about an hour and a half. The procedure was only an hour and a half, and so done in the evening. I seem to remember. Uh, they got it done. I woke up, um, didn't feel anything at the time because of the drugs, went home. Then I felt it that night. I can tell you that one for sure. Um, and then I think it was about six weeks where I couldn't sleep on one side of my body, which was slightly frustrating. Uh, but, you know, that was that was what I had to do. So does it give you some peace of mind knowing that you have that ICD now? Yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent. You know, I sort of now go about my life in a very relaxed manner. Um, I, I know that something is there. I'm literally a walking defibrillator, which in a way is slightly unfair that I'm allowed to do that and some other people are not. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very at peace with it at the moment. So, But having that um, ICD, does that mean that there are some things that you couldn't do? Am I right in thinking that you decided or had to give up football and other contact sports? Yeah, contact is a no-go um, mm. in that region. So I'm not going to go boxing. I'm not going to go playing rugby. Um, I, I stopped playing football for a, for about a year and a half. Uh, it's coming up to two years of cardiac arrest now in about a week, but I, I played football. I started playing football about six months ago. Um, but I wear a, a protector on my chest, uh, which everyone sort of says, oh, what are you wearing on your chest? You're wearing a protector. And they're like, oh, look at this big girl's blouse. And obviously there's a reason behind it. Uh, so I wear that, but I don't play to the level that I did before. I don't want to play to the level I did before. Everything just gets more physical as you go up the levels. So I'm very happy where I am. I play. I don't play as much as I did, and that's kind of why I stick to golf. I mean, I loved it anyway, but I play golf. It's you know obviously not a contact sport. I love my tennis. Um, so that's one thing. Yeah, I've had to sort of shift away from the contact sports. I did play a lot of rugby as a youngster, but I'm more now on the individual non-contact sports. Fantastic. I, I just love your attitude that you just you know, very adaptable and just foremost in your mind is that you feel so lucky to be here. Yeah, exactly. That's the main thing, I, I think, because I suppose if I hadn't survived, then that's kind of a different thing, isn't it? In terms of I'm actually here, I can do something. Yeah. I can actually play sport. Yeah. So I think that's how I kind of look at it. Yeah. No, it's a, a brilliant and really healthy attitude to have. Going back to your diagnosis of, of long QT, can you explain for those who don't know how it was explained to you what that is? Because it's a hereditary condition, isn't it? Yeah, it's hereditary. And as I was saying before, the doctors in the UK are sceptical about whether my dad actually died from a heart attack and not a cardiac arrest or something to do with long QT syndrome. Obviously, you'll never know. I wasn't told too much about it. You know, I've tried to go and research a little bit about it. My mum's done most of it, really. But I was just sent a letter in terms of what the NHS told me. I was sent a letter 
uh, with the diagnosis. I've had a bit of contact with my doctor in terms of what that actually means. And in terms of before and after diagnosis, nothing's really changed. Uh, it just means that it's now confirmed that I'm going to be on beta blockers for the rest of my life. Before the diagnosis, I didn't actually know that. But now I know that I will be on uh, beta blockers for the rest of my life. And that's kind of the only difference. And that kind of tells you all you need to know about the, you know, the expertise of these guys in, in, in that field. Absolutely. I mean, being a hereditary condition, you've already mentioned that it, it's kind of put a question mark on, you know, your dad's death because it... The, the thing is that it could have been inherited from him. But when you realised that, how did that make you feel or d- did you just not dwell on it? Doctors first, well, they found out about my um, dad's passing and what actually happened. They spoke to my mum and said, look, this, we obviously never will know, but this is interesting to see this. Uh, but yeah, as you said, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on it. I just don't see the point. Yeah, You're never going to know. So what what is really the point? Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. And as a result, so there have been implications for your family and I believe your your mum and your brother's been tested? Yeah, so they've both been tested now. Uh, it took a while, but uh, the, the results are in now and they're both negative, so they don't have what I have. Uh, yeah. Again, strengthening the uh, argument of my dad having something or someone in yeah. the family having something similar. Yeah. Can I um, just go back to when you were in hospital? Because obviously your your mum lives in, in Kenya. I, I think your brother was here, but it must have been awful for her because didn't she get on a plane and sort of fly straight here? Yeah, she did. Yeah. Um, it was actually near the height of the lockdown in, in April of 2021. Yeah. We were coming out of lockdown or something like that. And obviously it was tricky to get to get overseas at this point. Uh, she managed to get a flight, luckily, literally the next day, I think. Uh, she got over, got an, an exemption to go to hospital rather than having to quarantine. Uh, only for a day, though. Um, so she came, saw me. Obviously, very tricky. You know, I wasn't awake at this point, so she wouldn't have known. I could have just been a vegetable when I woke up. No no one really knew. They did some small tests. They they put a, a torch in my eyes to see if I'd react to it, and I did react to it, which was a good sign. And I think... She, no, she was there. I think she was there because... When I woke up, was she there when I woke up? I can't fully remember that, but she was definitely there for something. And I seem to remember when somebody, someone asked, squeeze, squeeze your hand if you can hear this. And I squeezed it bloody hard. And it was my mum's hand who I squeezed really hard and not knowing. So I think that was what she was there for. But I don't think she was there when I woke up. I mean, she'll probably have to correct me on that one. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was tricky for her to get over, but she did in the end, luckily. Yeah, but it, it must have been quite confusing for you as well when you kind of woke up and then saw her, that she was back in the UK. and Yeah, 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 that was actually very confusing. Also to see my cousin, because my co- my mum's cousin and my second cousin came over, very kind of them. They spent a few days in, in uh, Stoke of all places um, to see me. Um, so, yeah, it was very weird to see them. I'd, I'd literally, I think I'd seen them not even long before. I was wondering what they were doing here. So around my bed, I was just very confused. Um, but it was quite nice to see them, to be honest. So extra time with mum, but never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but not in those circumstances, no, exactly, as yeah. you say. Yeah. So on, on a really positive note, so you, you mentioned Aaron, and now he's the chap who saved your life. He's the fellow golfer, and you didn't know him beforehand. But you've developed this really strong bond, haven't you, since it happened? Yeah, Aaron and I get along very well. It'd be a bit strange if we didn't. But I met him literally, I think, a couple of days after I came out of hospital. Uh, we went for a for a pint at the pub in, in, in Shrewsbury. 
Um, I met him there, you know, we took him some wine, just a little thank you. Very nice man. You know, he's very good at what he does in his profession. We're still yet to actually have a proper round of golf. We've played at the range a couple of times. Uh, we've obviously been to the BHF Awards together, which was nice. We've seen each other about um, and we catch, we, you know, we occasionally catch up. But yeah, I think we've got a good friendship. You know, we've done a few shoots together. Um, and so I think it's just going to grow stronger, our bond. But, you know, huge thanks to him, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah, no, absolutely. And c- can you describe that sort of first meeting with him? Was was it emotional? I know you take everything in your stride, but it must have been. Yeah, quite yeah it was. Um, and also the one of my best mates who was with me at the time on the course came with us as well. So we were all back in it together for the first time. Obviously, I was awake and able to say something this time. But yeah, it was slightly emotional. You know, I sort of thought this guy doesn't know who I am. I've never met him before. We have mutual friends, but that doesn't really count. Um, he sort of went out his way to save my life. I had blood on my mouth and he still did um, mouth to mouth. So, you know, commitment from him, which is very respectable. And But I think for him, it was almost autopilot. Um, but, he, you know, I'm not going to think about that. It was just a very kind act of him to do what he did. And, yeah, I think we're just going to grow a, a strong bond. Absolutely. And can you remember what you said to him when you first met? Because I, I suppose thank you isn't enough, really, is it? Yeah, thank you's never going to be enough, I think, in, in a situation like that. Uh, I don't know. We gave, as I said, we gave him a big uh, thing of wine. <laughs> Again, that's probably not enough. Uh, I, I I just think being good to him and, uh, you know, maybe trying to find some time out of my, I don't have the busiest of schedules, but trying to find some time out of my schedule to, spend some time with him, you know, catch up every so often. I think that's an important thing, you know, stay in contact. We do occasionally. But I think if I just left him and said thanks and bye-bye, I think that wouldn't have been very kind. But, I'm, you know, he's a, he's a great guy, so I'm, I'm definitely not going to do that. No. And and you mentioned there you, you nominated um, Aaron for a Heart Hero Award, a CPR Hero Award at the BHF Heart Hero Awards last year. And you came to him, you, you, you both scrubbed up really well, I have to say. Um, you, you came to the awards ceremony. Was, was that like, was that, was that quite emotional for you as well? Yeah, so as you said, I nominated him, I think a year ago now. I just sat down, I think I sat down at the airport and just wrote a little thing to the BHF saying that this guy's done this for me. And someone came back to me um, and it sort of went from there and my story got out and we were obviously nominated, well, Aaron was nominated. Uh, so we were invited to the awards in December. Uh, went to those and you know great evening uh, met some quite quite big people uh, Davos Jinala which was amazing sat on the table but that was not the point really you know we had a great evening together Aaron and I went for a few beers after and beforehand as well and and to be honest to be there together was yeah quite emotional uh, it was a great experience you know the journey we've had from going from not knowing each other at all to him saving my life pretty much to then going to quite a prestigious dinner was yeah quite quite the journey Amazing. And what I, I know, like you said, that wasn't the point, but did you get to chat to David Ginola? Because he, he's been in your position as well. He had a cardiac arrest. Did he, did he know your story? Did he? Uh, I don't think he knew my story, but he, you know, he asked about me, which was, which was nice of him. Uh, we had a good conversation on the table. He presented Aaron's award. So he saw my video up on the screen and he's, he's a, he's a golf fanatic like I am. So he appreciated the, the golf part of the story. But yeah, no, very nice guy. You know, I obviously asked about him um, and, you know, his story is obviously just just similar. Brilliant. Yeah, no, he is really great. But how soon after your cardiac arrest did you feel you could go back onto a golf course and and play? Quite quickly. 
<laughs> Sounds odd, but I was, I think I was, actually, no. I would have done if I could, but I couldn't because of my chest. Because the scar was healing. It took a while to heal. Uh, I think it took minimum six weeks for it to actually heal properly. And then I had to wait another month and a half or whatever it was to actually go and do physical activity. So I was itching to go on the course when I actually got on. Uh, believe it or not, I go back to this course whenever I'm in, whenever I'm back in, in Shrewsbury. I go back probably three times a week, uh, even on my own. It actually holds special, holds quite a special uh, place in my heart. I think the fact that they actually, if I wasn't there, would I be here? Probably not. But yeah, I mean, I got back on the course as soon as I could, I think. No, that's that's lovely. And I, I completely understand what you were saying there about it being kind. It takes on a special poignance when you go back to that course. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was also taking people back there. My mum went to the tea box for the first time not that long ago. She sort of had shivers and sort of didn't know what to do. Whereas I've been there however many times since and just play it like I would normally. The BHF's life-saving research is giving hope to so many people. If you would like to support our work, please consider a donation by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate pod. So can I ask you, Guy, has what has happened to you in your diagnosis, has that changed the way that you think about your heart at all? Um... Has it made you more more aware of it? Yeah, I'm definitely more aware of it, 100%. You know, I, in terms of, the, as I've said before, the sport, I, I'm less competitive. I, I see things in a different light now. In terms of my outlook on life, I think the heart bit is just changed my perspective on, on my life more than anything in terms of me thinking about my heart the whole time. Uh, you know, I, I'm more grateful for what I have. I'm not saying that I wasn't grateful before, but I'm definitely more grateful now. And I think, I've, you know, the change in perspective is something that's interesting to me. You know, you reevaluate what's actually important uh, in life. Uh, you know, I've moved away from um, taking smaller things more seriously than I should do, uh, than, than I did, in fact. Yeah, I've moved away from taking smaller things very seriously, such as a kickabout in the part of my mates. You know, I'm not trying to win an Olympic gold medal um, anymore. So, and I feel like I'm just having more fun, you know, Sounds odd, but I actually am because I'm not trying to be at the highest level that I can be. Things are a little bit more enjoyable, less strenuous. And yeah, that's kind of the outlook that I have now in, in a nutshell. Amazing. Yeah, I, I remember you saying to me that you're you're far less competitive now than, than you were. Yeah, definitely, so. definitely. I wasn't ridiculously competitive. I'm not going to throw my shoes in the pram if I lose a game of tennis to a mate. Uh, but I... I am competitive when it comes to school sport, when I was back at school, when something actually meant a little bit more than, than, it, than you know what I mean. Um, so in that sense, I was very competitive. But, you know, now at uni sport, I do a little bit of football. As I said, I don't let it ruin my weekend if we lose a game to someone in the Devon League. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about how you've supported the British Heart Foundation um, in some amazing ways since you had your cardiac arrest and since your diagnosis. Firstly, what, why was it important to you to, to kind of support us? So I've done the cycling. So I cycled um, Land's End to John O'Groats in May of last year. Um, I raised just over four and a half grand, I think, for the BHF. It was around four and a half grand, which I sent over. Uh, you know, I think it's important for me because, you know, I feel like I was very lucky to survive something like that. And I want to give back 
to people who have similar conditions to me and might not survive or the money that I provide could go in helping someone else with the medication or an ICD implantation or just anything to do with, you know, helping a heart or helping live with a heart condition. I think that was important to me. And, you know, if I can raise awareness for one person to go and learn CPR or for one person to go and learn a little bit more about a heart condition, then I think I've done a little bit of a job there. Was that, because that that's quite a ride, quite a thing to take on, Landsend's John O'Groats. And we, is there a sense in which that was also quite therapeutic for you and, and kind of signalled, you know, a bit of getting back to normal after what had happened? Yeah, definitely. You know, I spent many, many hours on my own on that ride, listening to podcasts and music and just getting, you know, a sense of what life is really all about. Obviously, it was a bit of a struggle at times, especially getting up in Scotland when it rained the old time. But yeah, I think the challenge of it mentally was was really, really the part about it, you know, was what it's all about. But I also enjoyed it in a, in a way. You know, I got to see the UK on, on, on a bike, which is a bit different. But yeah, actually, yeah, surprisingly, I enjoyed it. But I think the, the whole point of me going through what I did to then going to do this challenge sort of, I felt like I could inspire people to, maybe I haven't, but I feel like I could inspire people to go and do something with their life, even if they have a setback. That's kind of my motto, I think, after after all this. No, that's but and, and I was going to ask you this later, but I'll ask you now because I think that's a, a really important point because I think there'll be lots of young people in a similar situation, maybe listening to this, kind of wanting, you know, be interesting, interested to see how you've kind of moved forward. So what, what would your advice be to just really young people living with a heart condition? Yeah, I think it kind of speaks for itself in a way that just follow doctor's instructions as best you can. You know, they know the best. And I think staying active is very important. You know, it sounds counterintuitive if you've got a heart condition, but actually it does. It will help. And obviously, you know, you need to find out about how far you can actually go in terms of the activity. Uh, but a little bit here and there does definitely help. You know, if times get difficult as well, I think it's very important that you speak out, you tell somebody it's kind of a, it's not the same as mental health, but it's, it can cause mental health, um, you know, if, if you worry or if you're anxious. And I think just speaking out or talking to your doctor, because, you know, doctors do this all the time. This is their norm. So I think that's an important thing. You know, I'm lucky so far. I haven't really been too anxious about it. I haven't had too many problems. But if you, if anyone ever does, I think the importance of speaking out is, is really crucial. Oh, that's an excellent point. So most recently, just a few weeks ago, you did some filming for our um, This Is Science campaign, um, which is shining a spotlight on how our research has and is helping people like yourself. So what what was what was that like for you to take part in that? What what do you you know what do you think about our research? Why is it so important? Yeah, you know, I was you? pretty proud in a way to get asked, but obviously it was because of a reason. Uh but I think, you know, I've there's a sense of satisfaction contributing to a cause that will hopefully go on to help other people. Uh, and obviously, the work the BHF do is, you know, unmatched. I think in their field, uh, the money that they they're able to, well, the money that they receive is is able to allow them to, you know, the research for uh, for pills like I that I'm taking. Um, it allows them to sort of give people a sense of security with, you know, conditions or devices. It also allows them to you know, to, to go further into research and into future years of, of how people can be treated. 
And I think what I'm hoping that the campaign that I was involved in is just going to raise that awareness even more, get people talking about cardiac arrests and heart attacks and CPR. And if we can do that, if we can get five or 10 people talking about it, then I think it's, it's a success. But also I think I feel a sense of responsibility to be involved in something like that because I feel like my story might have a greater impact on people in terms of them going out their way to understand what, what this really means instead of somebody just talking about it going, oh, we're doing this campaign, bloody blah, blah, look at this, da, da, da. I think, you know, I, I don't like saying it, but I feel like a story like mine will actually get people to think a bit, little, little bit more about what it actually means. You're spot on. You know, stories like yours are bringing our research to life and showing why our research is so important. So you've just hit the nail on the proverbial head there, Guy. Can you, as, as we sort of come to a close, can you describe what life is like for you now? You're at university. What, what are your kind of hopes and dreams for the future? You know, I, I think for me, I, when I was a young boy, I wanted to be a sportsman. That was my goal. That's not going to happen anymore. But maybe to work in, in sports, to be a, you know, an agent or just anything to, anything to do with sport. My dad was a sports manager before he passed away. So, you know, it's been in my blood. You know, my uncle is a sports journalist. So sport runs in the blood in our family. So something to do with sport. That's my passion as well. Apart from that, you know, I, I'm sort of taking things day by day, week by week, month by month. I, I don't want to push myself too hard. I just want to enjoy what I have at the moment. You know, I'm enjoying uni. Um, obviously, there's going to come a point where I need to start looking a bit further into the future. But um, at this point, you know, I, I'm happy with where I am and um, the future will, will will come about and see what happens. Guy, c- can I ask you, have you wanted to learn CPR after learning about what Aaron did to you? 100%, yeah. Pretty, you know, annoying to say that I didn't know very much about it beforehand. I wouldn't be able to tell anyone else how to do it, so... You know, afterwards, I went out my way to to find out how you, how it actually works. I mean, that was obvious, really. I had to do that. And it's very easy. The British Heart Foundation have got an app, the Reviver app, which you can literally learn CPR in 15 minutes, I think. Um, and you never know that 15 minutes might save someone's whole life. So I think, you know, it's very important to learn. Even just talking about it with other people is of great importance. If you want to find out more about Long QT, visit the BHF website at bhf.org.uk. To learn CPR with our free online tool Reviver and help save a life like Guy's, go to reviver.bhf.org.uk. If you've got any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health and want to talk with a cardiac nurse on the BHF's heart helpline, go to our website at bhf.org.uk slash heart helpline. You'll find all the contact options there. And if you've got your own heart story or have any thoughts on this episode, we'd love to hear from you on email at the ticker tapes at bhf.org.uk.